0: Our scripture reading comes from Exodus chapter 20 and uh, Hebrews chapter 12. got two passages we want to look at before we dive into this this morning. Exodus 20, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Hebrews chapter 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, And a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks, better, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The word of the Lord. You know, I have recently become quite uh, enamored Uh, with a concept that was first put in front of me by a a moral philosopher, Jonathan Haight, in his book, The Righteous Mind, uh, where he says in his introduction this, he says, an obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that hanging over normal human experience is this desire to be justified, Or, as author David Zoll puts it, a desire to be enough. Listen to what Zoll says. He says, you're going to hear people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. And we believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, and value, vindication, and love would finally be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. But here's the wrinkle one so well worn that it hardly bears mentioning. No matter how close we get or how much we achieve, we never quite arrive at enough. You know, Hate says that the psychological term that we ought to use to sort of describe that energy that we expend at wanting to feel like we've been enough, is the word justification. That's a good word. He says, this is the key to unlocking the explanation of your humanity. In other words, if you want this morning to get at the core of who you are and what it is that makes you you, you have to follow the traces of your quest for righteousness. Again from Zal, he says, wherever you are the most tired, Look closely and you'll likely find self-justification at work. A drive to validate your existence, to assert your lovability via adherence to some standard of enoughness. (laughs) Look, I think there's a lot of benefits of sort of framing our humanity in this way. And one of them is that that we can learn to get over how fearful we are at our world that's secularizing. Do you know what I mean? A lot of Christians do a lot of hand-wringing, wondering if we have anything to say to the world around us. Well, if what Zol and Hate are saying is true, we've got endless resources because the world has never stopped trying to figure out what it means to justify their existence. How can we be enough? How can I live a purposeful life? Those are the answers that we still have, still have within our means. And so what we find is is this key to unlocking the sense behind our behavior is that they lie in the objects of our enoughness, right? Whether it's food or romance or education, children, politics, or even technology. These, These things, which by the way are not bad in themselves, turn bad when I look to them to provide me with enough, so they say. It becomes toxic when those things in themselves become means for me to self-justification. I think there's another benefit, though, from framing this in this way, is it'll help you understand the contrast that's being cast between Exodus 20 and Hebrews chapter 12. Because what we have in the scene from Exodus 20 is the people of God standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, quaking in fear as they do. But in Hebrews chapter 12, you have God's people, figuratively, standing at the base of Mount Zion, the holy city Jerusalem, which of course is a metaphor for this new humanity that God has created that you and I call the church. It's what you're doing right now. And when you see the differences between those two mountains, you're going to see something that's dramatic to unlock what it's like to be you. And as it turns out, the linchpin is going to come to how you understand the role of the law in your life. Whether you stand at Mount Zion or Mount Sinai this morning, it will be because of the way you deal with the law. And not just the capital L laws that we've been talking about in the Ten Commandments, but also the little L laws that we set up all the time to make us feel like we're righteous. This is why John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, will put it this way. He says, ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most religious mistakes. You don't get the law right, you miss it all. And so until you learn to figure out exactly what God wants from us in the Ten Commandments and how he's laid it out, you've not even started with Christianity, if what John Newton says is correct. And I think he is. So I want to unpack this morning the Christian's relationship to the law as a whole by looking at three points. The terror of, and the law, lawyers and the law, and you and the law. Don't get panicky lawyers. It's not what you think. But first of all, we have to look at the terror and the law because for 17 verses in Exodus 20, you've seen God thundering and then in verse 18, it's as if the camera sort of slowly pans down from the mountain and looks at these people, and they're all kind of like, okay, slowly <laughs> backing up, right? Terror smeared on their faces. Look at the verse. It says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. Now, what was it that had ca- terrified these people? I think there's a couple things. The first one is they saw themselves. You know, when you look and see yourselves, you realize that that these images that are coming from Sinai, they would go on in the rest of the Old Testament to become biblical themes of judgment. In other words, wherever you see fire or smoke or thunder or lightning or how about this, trumpet blasts, those will all be metaphors throughout the rest of the the, uh, the book of God's revelation of symbols of judgment. And the reason why is, is because even for you and me, there's nothing more natural for someone than to recoil from something that intimidates you, right? As a child, when you went up and touched the hot plate, which your parents told you not to do, there was something instinctive inside your brain that caused you to jerk back from that. The physical reaction, though, is a great little metaphor for the moral response that we often have when we see holiness for the first time. In other words, when these newly freed Jews begin to hear exactly what God has asked of them, they jerk back, almost instinctively. You want to know why? Because they know they can't keep it. (laughs) They're trying to get away from the thing that's undone them. But the second thing I think that this does also, the reason why they're terrified, is because they've now seen exactly what it is that God requires of them. And don't be fooled. It is total allegiance you know, they realize you know, that God has just staked a claim to every nook and cranny of their lives. It's almost like for the first time since their release from Egyptian captivity, they suddenly realize, I, I don't think this God is playing. He's here for keeps. And so the Jews have just found that this God who has freed them is terrifying in his holiness. <laughs> now look, it's no mystery to you. That's not a very popular view of God these days. People will tell you, I just don't like to think of God in that particular way. But I want to look at that objection and take it seriously. Is it necessarily graceless for God to reveal his holiness as if it's a dangerous thing to us? Now, let's take it, for instance, let's say for imagine for a sake, that your three-year-old has just learned how to run, right? And you cheered her on when she first did it. You were so proud of her. <laughs> but of course, that is until she ran right into the street. Or maybe out of the door. She bolted out of the door at Walmart into the dangerous parking lot out there. And, of course, when she did that, of course, she was met with punishment and a little lecture from Mommy and Daddy about the dangers of, their, of disobeying their rules. So here's my question. Is it graceless for me to bring the, the consequences of the law and bring fear and terror onto my children in order to make them reconsider the next time they bolt out into the middle of the street? Well, of course it's not. But why is it not? Because our rules for our children, Lord willing, are bound up with the realities of their existence. That speeding cars and little children do not mix together. To break the law is to go against their best interest for themselves. Which at present, they don't seem to have a good grasp on. Okay, so when you begin to look at the Ten Commandments and you're like, ugh! What is up with this God and all of his rules? Why is he so strict? Is it possible that God is simply saying, I am not some cranky deity arbitrarily sort of throwing out rules in order to keep you under my thumb. Rather, my laws are tied up with the reality of your existence. So that in keeping them, you find doing something that is at your best interest which apparently, according to our sin, we don't have a good grasp on. Okay, so now do you see it? The contrast between the two uh, mountains, between Sinai and Zion. Because it turns out, even though they're contrasted, they're not unrelated. I think what we find is, is that in order to get to Mount Zion, it's almost like you got to go through Mount Sinai. In other words, to get there, you've got to experience the terror of experiencing God's holiness, I think this is actually gonna help us in a thousand different ways. One of the ways in which it'll help us is by showing us whether we've met the real God or not. Because I don't know that we've met the real God until you wanna get away from him. That's how you can know it's the real him. The reason why we don't have a really good grasp on our present situation is because we look at the things that we struggle with as if they're malformity, maybe a couple little brush ups here and there on my moral behavior, we don't see them the way God sees them. And when we get shocked into that realization, we suddenly begin to sort of question our old self-destructive ways, do we not? So my first question I want you to ask after this first point is, has the law of God disturbed you? Because we see that in the terror and the law. But secondly, though, I want to consider though lawyers and law. Like I said, don't get nervous, lawyers. It's not what you think. Because I think the reaction of the people in chapter 20, verse 19, is really borderline comic. <laughs> because in that moment, they glimpse God's agenda to save his people and exactly how he's going to do it. Don't you love the way they say it there? In verse 19, it says, You speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Now, what's going on in that exchange? What they're doing is, is what any person who suddenly realizes that I am at odds with the inevitable forces of the universe, would do. And that is, they ask for a go-between. They're looking for a mediator, someone who will represent. When you're pinned down and you're flailing and you're kind of grasping at straws, there's nothing more natural than to look for someone to save you. That's the idea. In other words, what you've got there in Mount Sinai are these little hints that more than anything else in the world, human beings need a good spiritual lawyer. I have to have someone who can come in and not be a crackpot lawyer, right? But someone who's skilled in at least a couple of different ways. And Moses is kind of our model here. In other words, first of all, a good lawyer is one who will come and explain the law to you. Moses says in verse 20, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And then Moses explains that God in that moment is testing them. Now, that kind of throws us off a little bit. Why would God test us? Well, I think for most of us, we're used to thinking about tests, doing what a teacher does. She teaches to test you to find out whether you've got something in you or not, whether you're worthy of a certain grade. But, of course, God knows exactly what's in the hearts of this newly freed people. In contrast, God's tests are given in order for you to know what's inside of you. These are for your benefit. God doesn't test his children to see if they're worthy. I think he knows by now that they are not. No, he tests them so that they can learn what's inside of them and thereby thereby putting a frame around the obedience he's going to ask of them. That was a big deal. (laughs) This frames the nature of our obedience, the lessons there for their benefit, so that they can begin to unlearn the patterns of behavior that were set for them by the Egyptian gods. Because, again, the best of lawyers are going to spend time with you and help you know exactly what and why the judge acts the way in which he does. But, you know, even the best of lawyers can only do this so well. There's a, there's a limit on how much lawyers can guess the mood and temperament of any given judge. But that's where the message of the book of Hebrews comes in, and it's fascinating. Because the writer of Hebrews is saying, but what if the lawyer and the judge are the same person? What if it's the same person? In other words, he's saying that our lawyer, our go-between, is both lawyer and judge. And for that reason, he he can know the judge's mind better than anyone else could. Look at Hebrews 12, 23. It says, We have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The second thing, though, that a good lawyer will do is he will explain not only the law to you, but he explains you to the judge. Look at verse 24. It says, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Look, the summarized message of the New Testament is simply this, that Jesus is our perfect and complete lawyer and he speaks to a universal issue. That's what that little phrase, the blood better than the blood of Abel. Every Jewish person knew that the guilt that rested over people was to answer for the blood of Abel. Brother of Cain, who was the first murderer. That was a, a shadow, a curtain cast over all humankind, so that every person, what they need more than anything else is not just a lawyer, but they need a lawyer who has a case. That's the deal. In other words, what they need is, is to find some way to get in. It's very interesting. After Exodus chapter 20, the next three or four chapters help the people of Israel figure out how to build an altar a place of sacrifice, a place of death. But think about this for a second. What if you find yourself in court with a lawyer who doesn't have a case? You ever thought about that? I mean, lawyers might find themselves in that circumstance. They realize they don't have any place to go, and so they got to get creative. Maybe we can pay off the jury. Uh, Maybe we can sort of use fancy words to confuse everybody. I don't know. Maybe we can find a loophole in the system. And I do think that there's a sense in which there's a lot of Christians who still nurtured this suspicion that Jesus, our lawyer, is having to kind of cobble something together. <laughs> I've used this illustration before, but, it, but it's, it's as if some Christians have this view of what it looks like for Jesus to be their lawyer before God. You know, Heavenly Father, I'm here to represent my client, uh, Les Newsome, uh, and uh, well, he did it again. And look, I know we've been here a bajillion times and everything, but Father, I'm just asking you for one more time, please, please, pretty please, maybe for my sake, Father, would you just let him off this one more time? Is that the conversation Jesus has in your understanding of his intercession before the Father? Because if you do, my guess is that when you get that kind of reprieve, you probably have a little suspicion inside of you that how long can that go on before the Father says to himself, enough, enough, Not even for the bajillionth time can I look past what Les did this time. But again, Hebrews 12 is telling us that Jesus is a perfect high priest, which means he's a lawyer who has a case. Which you think, how can that be? Because Jesus' defense before his father goes something like this. Father, I know that you are perfectly holy and perfectly just. And your law says... That if people treat each other the way Les Newsom does, they deserve death. But here's my hands. Here's my feet. Here's my side. I am the death for that sin. So now, Father, it would be unjust for you to exact two lives for one payment. Two payments for one sin. There's no way, it would be unjust for God to do that. So do you see the reversal? When you sum all this up, you've now come to the heart of what the theologians call the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. And to be honest with you, there's no more important concept to grasp in order to survive the Ten Commandments in this doctrine. And you can sum it all up by saying this, what Jesus did on the cross in this great exchange of righteousness, him us getting his, our, giving him our unrighteousness while he gives us his righteousness, means that Jesus is not asking his father for mercy. He's not up there begging for mercy on your behalf. The intercession that Jesus makes because of the cross is him asking for justice. The law which used to condemn you now speaks on your behalf because it's all been paid perfectly and justly. That's why the hymn writer would say, let us wonder, because grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. That's what this lawyer does. So Moses was just a type. He was a pointer. And he showed that these Israelites, they knew what they needed. As God thundered, they began to suddenly get these shadows and echoes that could only be fulfilled in the Messiah. And I do think that for Christians throughout the ages, they've actually seen this as a pattern for understanding exactly what's going on spiritually in their life. I want you to think about this. Can you look back in your life and realize that there are repeated times when God has graciously, how shall we say this, allowed you to see yourself through his eyes? <laughs> and it unnerved you like it should. He tested you to show you what you were capable of. But the question I want you to grapple with this morning is, what did you do with that terror? What lawyer did you consult in that moment? Because if, since those days, you've been shopping at the marketplace of enoughness, my guess is you've been coming up short over and over and over again, and that none of the elation and the joy of Hebrews 12 describes you. Why? Because through it all, you've been trying to justify yourself. Make it a little bit more unnerving. You realize that this even includes people who've been going to church all their lives. Don't you realize that church going, reading your Bible, uh, new commitments to pray better, all of those things, if they are performed in any other spirit than the spirit of justification by grace, can so easily become avenues for self-justification. It's called legalism, hoping that eventually this will help me be acceptable or enough. All we're doing in the midst of our religious activity is still standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. That's the difference. So terror and law, lawyers and law, finally, let's apply this, you and the law. Where does this leave us with the Ten Commandments? And I do think that after a certain point when you get to the law, you're like, "Ah, oh, this is too much. I don't understand where I'm supposed to go. I had a dear friend of mine, Philip Palmertree, who's the pastor down in um, the PCA church down in Kosciuszko, lifelong friend of mine, who when we were in seminary unpacked um, the four usefulnesses of the law to God's people. What's the purpose of the law? And, the, and, he, and he gave them to me in images, which means I remembered them for 25 years. The first is this. He says the law is a portrait. It's a portrait that shows us a picture of God. What are the things he cares about? What does he like? That's what the Ten Commandments give us. The second thing he says, though, is the law is also a map. It shows us where to go. How many times do we get tangled up in our Christian life of, I just want to know what God wants me to do? Well, here it is. <laughs> and if it's not represented here or in some application of these ten rules, guess what? You're, you can use your conscience to do your best. It's such a huge part of Christian decision-making. Thirdly, Phillips used to say that the law is like a mirror. It's a mirror that gets holed up to us so that we can see ourselves. Like if this really is the manufacturer's design for knowing ourselves. We don't know ourselves until we see ourselves in the law, what we're really like. Struggle to know myself begins here in knowing what it means to thrive. Fourthly and finally, Phillips says that, that we are, um, the law is a little bit like an x-ray machine, Right? An x-ray machine is fascinating, isn't it? Because it can show you what's wrong with you, but it doesn't have any power to fix it, does it? It reveals something to you. without That's what the law is like. But that brings you to a question because we know intuitively that the reason why God is revealing the Ten Commandments to these Jewish people is so that they may be transformed from their Egyptian way of life Well, if the law is only an x-ray machine to show me what's wrong but can't fix it, what is it that's going to fix me? And how will it? Let me put a finer point on it. How does justification by grace through faith transform us? Now, that's a good question. And and I want to begin answering that by telling a great old story. It's an old preacher story about a British man who had retired and did what he had been dreaming of doing all his life. He bought a Rolls Royce. And what he wanted to do was tour all over Western Europe and see all the sights over a few months of holiday. Well, he loaded up his car on a ferry and he docked it on the other side of France and began his trip. Well, a week or so into his trip, his car broke down on the side of the road in a small little town. So frustrated, he picks up the phone and calls the dealership where he bought the car. And the voice on the other lines assured him that all he needed to do was to find a place nearby where he could stay the night and wait for help to come. Well, the very next day, a man from Rolls-Royce arrived at his broken-down car, which the man could hardly believe, of course, that he was there at all, much less so quickly. And throughout the rest of his tour, the man came along and began to fix his car. And once it was done, he gave reassurances and was on his way. Well, as the man set out about the rest of his tour, he was trying to enjoy his holiday, but in the back of his mind, he kept thinking, man, how much is it going to cost me to fix, to have this car fixed? I wonder what that bill's going to be like. Well, when finally his holiday was over, he realized it was time to pay the piper. So he dejectedly, while he was back home, sent a letter to the people at Rolls Royce asking them just how much this repair was going to cost from a few months prior. Well, a couple days later, he received a letter from these people that had one sentence in it. It went like this. Dear sir, We have no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls-Royce. Sincerely. (laughs) Now look, that illustration works on a couple levels, doesn't it? The first one is this. How many of us are sort of touring around this life to see the sights that God has unpacked for us, but we're nurturing a little bit of dread that eventually there's going to be a bill to pay? That that's what waits us on the other side of our own journey. And how much joy are we lacking? Joy, which is itself intended to be transformational for us. Because we've not yet apprehended the fact that in Christ we have the Rolls Royce of salvation. Absolutely perfect justification by grace through faith. Because secondly, that is the declaration of justification. That my relationship to the law has been made so secure secure, that there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Man, now we got to return to our passages. Don't you see this contrast? There are two mountains. Where are you this morning? At the foot of which do you sit this morning? Because those who are standing before Mount Sinai have sort of fashioned their constant life over hustling for their worthiness, trying to sort of build an enoughness, and it's exhausting. But of those who stand before Mount Zion, washed in the blood of the Lamb, they have, as James Proctor said, cast their deadly doing down down at Jesus' feet, standing in him and him alone, gloriously complete. That's well said. <laughs> But look, in the end, the law comes to us and continues to drive us crazy until we push to Christ, look to Christ, look to Christ as one who kept the law perfectly, but also himself who bore the curse so that now I stand in him completely free. This is the reason why the hymn writer would say something like this. And I want to finish up the whole Ten Commandments with this one little stanza from one of my favorite poems. Run, 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 the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, with the grace given us at the cross, give us those wings. Father, the wings that only joy can bring to take delight in your law, that we might look at all of the trinkets that stand around us of, of, of money, of influence, of power, All the things that the world is going at with breakneck speed. Unfortunately, Father, even many who name you as Savior and Lord have now become lured in by the ring of power and they seek everything they can do to break your law, to hang on to that power. Oh, Father, forgive us. Forgive us for the ways in which we have not gone the way of the cross by going the way of helplessness and the the terror that exists before the law and not embracing the joy that you are indeed our perfect high priest, that you've been a lawyer with a case, and that those who know you stand before you gloriously complete. There is nothing we need more this morning than to get a taste of that. Would you grant it to us by your spirit? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.